before the Regency. So he was flying in and as a boxing promoter and attending openings and, you know, meeting fighters and all of that. It seemed untouchable at that point because they had he had such a tight network in Ireland headed up by people he'd known all his life and really there was nobody able to say boo without him agreeing to it. Things changed in the aftermath of the Regency one way or another. I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Daniel Kinahan is posturing again with press statements, pictures and positive propaganda from an army of boxers under his control. And now he is teeing up for a world-exclusive interview with podcaster James English, whose popular YouTube show has featured chats with a host of MTK boxers, many of whom have taken the opportunity to praise the drugs boss. So what is going on with Ireland's Most Wanted? And how has he managed to mingle between the world of organised crime and that of the sport of boxing? Today, I'm talking to Sunday World Deputy Editor Niall Donald about Kinahan's rise to boxing power broker and his attempts to sportswash his criminal reputation. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Daniel Kinahan is out again and he is posturing and releasing statements and he is now promising or certainly the James English podcast in the UK um, is promising a world exclusive interview with him. We don't know exactly when that's coming, but um, it was announced late last week on YouTube and on uh, English's social media sites. It's hard, I suppose, for the general public to work out what it is that Daniel Kinahan is doing. Um, But I think we have a little bit of an insight into it after years of writing about this guy. And this seems to be a regular foray, an outing every time a little bit of pressure comes on. This seems to be his reaction, his kickback to it. Yeah, well, certainly unprecedented um that he would do an interview. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of people will be listening with interest to that. But uh, I think um, in in recent times, there's been little waves of publicity. Um, initially, it was really uh, anonymous Twitter sites that that would that would push this line um, that 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 Daniel was, you know, a great guy and a great manager and never convicted of anything. I mean, the, the actual messages is being the same the whole way through. Um, but then then there were, became more formal uh, uh, books, obviously the famous, the infamous uh, 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 documentary video, for want of a better term. Um, and now this is probably another step again to try and... Um, I think I think there's no doubt that... that uh, Daniel has given up on Ireland in terms of his reputation. Um, but mm. I think he's, as he moves, as he becomes more and more, I mean, one of the most dominant figures in the world of boxing in in, in, in the whole world. Um, I think that's where he's aiming for this PR campaign to land. And in particular to land in, in the Middle East, where uh, boxing has found a new home. Uh, a lot of it centering around around the money generated by by uh, uh, by Daniel, and I think that's where he's aiming this PR campaign at the, the authorities in the Middle East and uh, 
you know, the 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 people that'll ultimately have a role in deciding his long term future. Because that's really at the heart of this, that he is trying to, he's desperately trying to cement himself a role as a businessman in the Middle East in order to kick back against any possible extradition requests that may be made for him uh, to do a criminal charges. But we're calling him Daniel, which means that he has made it in uh, the world of criminal celebrity, perhaps. But um, we'll just go right back, just to explain this for anybody who... um, you know, forgets where it all began. And Daniel Kinahan emerged from Dublin in just, I suppose, at the end of the 1990s, the turn of the century. He was a young guy that grew up in Oliver Bond flats along with his brother, Christopher Jr. His father, Christopher Kinahan Sr., uh, was convicted after being caught with heroin here in Ireland in the the 90s and he was released from prison and made his way to Amsterdam where he hooked up with John Cunningham, the former Jennifer Guinness kidnapper, and together they began to create Ireland's really first massive wholesaling drug and weapons organisation. I think they established themselves down on the Costa around 2000 or thereabouts and at that point Daniel Kinahan was brought very much into the business and he was positioned down on the Costa as one of his father's main men there. Yeah, so I mean, the, 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 the Kinahan crime gang emerged out of the, uh, the the desire for recreational drugs really in Ireland in the 1990s before you obviously had drug traffickers, but they were really feeding a different kind of market. There was the mark, the heroin Market obviously in the in in the inner cities that was lucrative but but small. Yeah, obviously the cannabis market that was relatively ubiquitous but not easy to find. But then the Kinnahans had uh, hit, you know, they hit the growth industry, which was the cocaine, ecstasy, and and drugs around that in the nineties boom time, and they became um, they obviously were the first Irish gang. Obviously, there was many Irish gangs that had dealt, had had international contacts to source drugs, but they became, I think, the first that became players in the international scene as opposed to just clients. So throughout the the early 2000s, I suppose the first 10 years of, of the 2000s up to 2010, they grew and grew and grew down on the Costa and across Europe in Amsterdam. Christy Kinahan largely based himself in Amsterdam. In Belgium, he moved around a bit more. He did buy properties down on the Costa. But uh, Daniel really was one of the key, one of his key guys down there, really running the operation on the Costa. And by 2010, we're moving swiftly through 10 years of growth there, by the way. But in 2010, there was Operation Shovel, headed up by the Spanish. And it was international cooperation against what they then called the Irish Mafia. And a lot of them were arrested, including Christy Sr., John Cunningham and the two Kinahan brothers. They were wheeled out in front of the world's media, brought to court on various charges. And we were told by Europol, that the Irish Mafia had been dismantled. Now, two years later, and this is really where the boxing kind of comes into it, we in the Sunday world had heard that the Kinnahans were very much back in business, that um, the Spanish judicial legal system really moves very, very slowly, and they had got bail. The charges were pending and magistrate was continuing to investigate these vast amount of files that had been collected against them. 
Um, and they were kind of back in business down in Porta Banus. And myself and a colleague went down there at the time and very much saw that in evidence. Um, they were openly living it up on the Costa again. And while there, we discovered that they had a new headquarters as, so, as such. And it was a small gym in an underground basement outside Porta Banus and called MGM Gym. Fronted by Matthew Macklin, uh, we could see from the social media that Daniel Kinahan had been involved with the builders. Um, and this was supposed to be a boxing gym that was set up as a non-for-profit, as a non-for-profit organisation. Uh, you could see a lot of the criminal associates of Daniel Kinahan from back in Ireland were training there. There was other, some identified, some not English um, members of that gym who were you know, of interest to the police. But they were also doing community work and they were running, you know, training classes for schools. They were raising funds for charity. They were running white collar events where they were raising funds in particular for a, a, a children's charity down on the Costa. And Daniel Kinahan sort of slowly came out as, you know, somebody very, very uh, significant in this gym. And he was gaining confidence, I think, as the, as the time went on. Yeah, so I think, um, again, it, it, there was two faces because I remember Daniel Kinnan was all over the, 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 the Spanish papers with a re- Operation mm. Shovel. He was named and pictured and the, the, the images were released by the Spanish police. But then a couple of years later, he started appearing uh, also as a as a, a a boxing man, for want of a better description. Mm. Obviously, he had a huge long-term interest in boxing, by all accounts. But he, he, there was a, there was, it was like, um, it, you know, it was like, a, well, Batman is released this week, so there was like heart. There was Bruce Wayne and the Batman, really. So he had two faces, and both of them were being were being pushed simultaneously. Obviously, Daniel Kinnan as a as a as a as a drug trafficker was pushing himself within that world but he was also pushing himself as a, a gym owner and a, and a boxing a boxing uh, a boxing man so the gym started off very very slowly obviously Matthew Macklin who, who has never had any involvement in crime was was a factor of it and I think it was and I could be wrong in terms of the date but there was maybe and it's relevant now because we're talking about him doing another interview I think before it was the only uh, interview he ever did where he, he did it with a boxing magazine, I think, sitting beside Matthew Macklin. And, you know, he, despite the fact he'd been all over the Spanish papers and all over the papers, all over the, the Europe as a, as a, as a, as a alleged drug trafficker at that stage, he also then did an interview with a boxing magazine where, where none of that came out. And he just spoke about being a great, a great pal of Matthew Macklin and how much he'd loved boxing all his life. And he wanted to invest it. And that's that's really that split when both things are going on simultaneously. That remain mm. that sort of remains to this day, but it's gotten bigger and bigger. It does, yeah. He's definitely on two trajectories in life, Daniel Kinnahan. Um I think in those early days I, we were initially surprised when when a few boxers started naming him as a manager. Uh, a couple of photographs started to emerge of him, you know, in out on social events with some of these boxers in the gym, you know, dressed in the MGM colours. And what was significant was the growth of MGM as a gym, because within those first few years, 
remember at one point counting up a hundred boxers they had signed. And a lot of these boxers were coming from, they were coming out of the uh, amateur arena. They had been Olympians and both in Ireland and England, and they were signing up professionally. And there wasn't maybe much going on in the boxing world. I don't ever purport to know much about the sport, but from people I was speaking to at the time, they would have said that they were kind of becoming the only show in town, that, you know, not every boxer that they'd signed would maybe have had a professional career if it wasn't for them. No, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, again, I'm not a... a a boxing expert either but it's been it's been traditionally um that at the very high end of boxing world championship fights there's huge amounts of money involved um and there's great money to be made for people involved at, at that level but at, a, at the lower level it's very hard to make money mm. it's very hard to to for fighters to to make a living it's very hard to get people to go to fights of, of that type so uh M- MGM, as it was called at that stage, seemed to sign up a lot of boxers that were never going to be pay-per-view on, on, on US TV, and they were putting on fight nights. Very, So, I mean, I think there was, we were talking to people at the time, and they were saying, I can't see how they're making it work financially mm. to be supporting fighters full-time and um, for them to be working, you know, being paid when they're not going to re- make that return easily. So, I mean, it was, it was, it, it was, Amazing, really, mm. because I think it started slightly slowly. And then at some point, there was just a massive acceleration where all of a sudden, every week there was an announcement before there'd been, you know, a, a small social media presence. Then all of a sudden there was, you know, professionally done websites. There was, um, you know, videos being put out and everything. And it, like it was a massive, massive growth. And I think it was unprecedented, not just from us looking outside the boxing world, the people inside were literally amazed that 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 they were being able to 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 grow at mm. that speed with that with that level of financial investment. And, you know, many people were swept up in that because in the end of the day, if you're a boxer, you need to make a living. And um, you know, there weren't that many opportunities outside of it. You talk about what it was like and you know, you could see that it was almost a nirvana for a boxer. They were being signed up from some small club, either in Ireland or the UK. They were being flown over to to um, Marbella along with their families. They were many of them were being put up in very luxury villas with this, um, you know, a swimming pool and just really, really nice lifestyle. And then they were finding this what appeared to be like a family sort of a setup within the the gym. A lot of them spoke about that camaraderie that was there, you know, this sort of brotherhood that they felt and this absolute loyalty to the man at the top of the tree, Daniel Kinahan, who was providing the funds to create this place where they were able to do what it was they wished to do, their dream. They were following their dreams to become professional boxers and to actually be able to be paid a, a decent salary, I suppose, for that. Um, 2014 to 2016 for me is the most significant period, certainly in the in the the first phase of Daniel Kinnan, which is his his organised crime one. Um, but actually, if you look at it, it's also a very significant period in the boxing. So between 2014 and 2016, Christy Kinnan Senior takes starts to take a back seat, and he starts to hand over the reins of his mafia to his son. 
um, he wants to bow out into retirement before he has to spend much more time in prison because, of course, he's been in and out of prison most of his career. Daniel hasn't been, but the father has. Um, and you can see now that Daniel Kinahan was making very significant contacts in organised crime in Europe at that point. It's around that time that the super cartel, as it's called by the DEA, the, the um, American DEA, that it forms. You have a Dutch Moroccan outfit headed up by Rido and Taji down in the Costa. They have just taken control after um, a former sort of Dutch mafia bosses assassinated down there. You have Eden Gassinen from the Balkans and you have Raphael Imperiale and they all come together um, to, to pool their resources and their contacts. You know, as the time has gone on, we can see that perhaps Imperiale had the, the deep contacts into Colombia and um, the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, relationship to buy the cocaine you have the Kinnahans, perhaps, with their their money laundering expertise. You have Taji with the the ports in the Netherlands and Belgium, um, and Gassinen has the the Balkan connection. So it was a business plan, really. And Kinnahan is behind it, but in the same time, he's falling out with members of his old school back in Dublin with the the Hutch contingent. Yeah, so I mean, he had um, like what you had, I think, in in certainly in the in the Netherlands, we had the next generation of criminals, and and that and Daniel Kinnan was part of that next generation. Guys, really in their their mid forties now, who who had been uh, groomed, I suppose, for want of a better word, with these older traditional uh, uh, gangs, certainly in Holland, but the you know and. These guys came through, and they were a different generation. I think. I think they had um, a bigger ambition in terms of becoming, uh, having their hands on every 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 phase of the operation. Where maybe Christie Senior was was regarded as as you know, we had an he was an agent really for these Colombian gangs that he would deal with them in Spain. But I think the the newer super cartel um, were very much involved in the logistics of moving it for example um i think the bosnian gangs if you see that they were they that the, they they were involved in in the shipping in setting up companies in south america in having guys over there um operating shell companies um some of it with uh, uh the guy el rico but you know there's 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 members of of the the, the bosnian mafia have been arrested all over uh, south america and in central america so I think they they became um, and they were more than just the clients of these of these operations. They became uh, trafficking operations in of themselves. At that point, I think um, the the Kin and organized gang were probably at their peak. Also, we remember they were moving in and out of Ireland at that stage. Nicola, mm. you know, Daniel was flying in, staying in you know lovely hotels in the city centre, not to name them. Um, you know, so he really, like at that stage before the Regency, although he was, uh, again, there was the two faces were operating. So he was flying in and as a boxing promoter and attending openings and, and you know, meeting fighters and all of that. Um, and although he was also appearing in, in police investigations, but that, that was the way it was at that stage. And they were very, it was, they were, it seemed untouchable. Um, at that point, because they had he had such a tight network in Ireland, headed up by people he'd known all his life, 
And really, there was there was in in terms of the the, the drugs business in Ireland, there was nobody able to to say boo uh, without him without him agreeing to it. And that was two thousand and sixteen. Um, but obviously, things changed in the aftermath of the Regency, one way or another. Now, you see, you mentioned the boxing there because during that same time period, you can just see the absolute explosion of of MGM and they start to sign up really serious names. They start to organise these big events in Dublin. And of course, the, the Regency weigh-in was the, you know, the day before the, the Clash of the Clans event was due to, due to happen. And he'd been back in Ireland with big shows before. Um, we had ourselves been in attendance at the Three Arena when, um, you know, that was a major big event, probably the biggest boxing event there had happened in Ireland in a long, long time. So the growth of the boxing was kind of running simultaneously with this development of this European super cartel, which brought with it money beyond anybody's wildest dreams. This was, whatever about the noughties being the, the cocaine gold rush, this really was where those, the massive money was. These guys were bringing in shipping containers. They were cutting out the middlemen. Europe was having a love affair with cocaine beyond anything we'd seen before and was huge growth market. And they were just landing more bigger and bigger shipments all the time. You had the, the other element of it, which was the encrypted phone technology, which had developed within the criminal underworld, but which law enforcement hadn't been able to chip into. So they were actually doing their business um, without too much worries because they felt they were on these bulletproof networks and could just arrange drug shipments and murders and whatever they wanted without um, having to to worry about how they were doing their communication. So um, the signing, I think, from the boxing trajectory with of Tyson Fury was probably a, one of the big, big moments um, for MGM. And that happened around the uh, the summer of 2016 and shortly after the, the Regency attack. Tyson Fury obviously had previously been the heavyweight champion of the world, had had uh, terrible uh, battles with mental health, um, had put on a huge amount of weight, had, you know, really slipped off the radar. Um, and, you know, really, I don't, I think um, most people... I'd said his career was over. Um, and at that point, then MGM, they had picked this guy up. Like it really, it, it didn't look like a good bet to most people at this stage. Um, no, he was uh, kind of on the scrap heap, Tyson Fury. I mean, his comeback is incredible. I mean, you know, what the guy had gone through would have been terrible. They showed faith in him. And at this point, uh, you know, six years on or whatever, they, they got him back in fitness. They looked after him put him up in a villa in Spain. Um, they think they had boxers with him a lot. Billy Joe Saunders was with him a lot of the time. They put him through intense training. They obviously, he needed that arm around him. Um, famously, he has uh, Daniel Kinnan's arm around him in one picture even. And, you know, um, they turned the guy back into a world heavyweight champion. And, you know, arguably uh, one of the greatest heavyweight champions in the history of the sport. Um but you know, it was it was a punt on it was a punt at that stage, and it was a bet mm. that's worked out beyond I think almost anybody's expectations. I mean, there's no doubt that Tyson Fury now is is commanding huge, huge money for his fights, 
and is, you know, the most famous boxer in the world. And in some ways, uh, you know, people will still be talking about him in a hundred years time. Um, mm. They then went from having signed a, a washed up boxer with all respect to him to signing uh, the most exciting boxer on the planet um, in mm. the space of a few years. It's funny, like, you know, um, I think if you remember uh, Sandra Vaughan, the CEO of, of MTK, and I remember doing an interview and saying about Daniel uh, Kinahan, people in Ireland should be proud of what he did, what he mm. what he has done. And you know, and it's greeted with, and rightly so, greeted with outrage that 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 somebody would maybe sports watch the guy like that. But you know, you can't see the moments with Tyson Fury that you know there is. Um, what they did with him was a, a, an incredible feat, uh, mm. dis- despite all the other sides to the guy, which we talk about. And his and like his his former coach Ben Davidson, who went on to work for MTK coaching other boxers, but he has actually credited Tyson Fury's survival to Daniel Kinahan and said he sort of saved him, you know. He he picked him up. He actually said in an interview that he he took him and he brought him in and he cleared his debts because he was he said he was um he was sort of drowning in in debt, obviously in mental health issues and using too much alcohol and whatever other substances he was abusing and he said he's kind of brought him in cleaned him up and fixed him up in every which way um and he has said that but i suppose at the same time that this wonderful amazing sporting achievement is happening which as you say will be remembered forever um things were going wrong for Daniel Kinahan in his organized crime element of his business because obviously the regency hotel attempt on his life which resulted in the murder of David Byrne happened um, that went on to very immediately um, create what we call the Kinahan Hutch feud which resulted in horrendous gangland organised crime murders on the streets here of Dublin like a European capital it felt like the city was under siege and for a long period of time, and I'm sure if you're living in the north inner city, it's um, you know, it'll it'll be something that'll go on for generations to come. But it felt as if this power, this might of this outside influence was bearing down upon Dublin and nobody was safe that um, you know, these murders were being directed from afar and um, the resources, the full resources of the state went into it. There was a very early figure that they reckoned it was a hundred million investment had gone into trying to just quell the murders on the street. So I mean, I mean the, the which is of course the uh, cost borne by the taxpayer as well. Like you know, um, mm. but yeah, I mean they they waged a war. I mean if you consider that that. Um, you know, at that point, the, the Kinnan organised crime gang were so strong and powerful that even the, the you know, when, when we would have started being reporters, um, the idea that a criminal gang would be willing to take on a Republican, the, the dissident organisations was, there was just no way it was going to happen. But if you look at um, um, what happened during that, that phase, they were willing to shoot you know, people involved with dissident organisations, they had no fear of them, you know, although, like, you know, the the real IRA and these groups are regarded as a genuine threat to the state, 
they were no threat to the to the Guineans because they were they were just not as powerful. Um, and obviously, if you if you think of the Hutchkinnon feud, you think of you know obviously all the people who've lost loved ones there. They're devastated, but there was also innocent people shot and killed on the streets of Dublin and um, and abroad and abroad. So I mean, it was it was. But I think what it looked initially like the 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 guards were not were not able to cope with what was going on. Ultimately, what happened um, as the policing kicked in and, and, you know, it's only a lot of them cases are only coming to court now. It, it did decapitate uh, from the Kinnans. It took away some of their most trusted people and which crime gangs really, really need to need those people in order to be able to operate people that they know aren't going to, be rats, for want of a better term, mm. who are aren't gonna who are gonna be uh, organised or capable of dealing with money, capable of carrying out instructions, and ultimately, you know, their control of the the, the drugs trade in Ireland and and in the UK um, was severely harmed as these key figures were 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 taken out and ultimately put behind bars in prison. You see, because after that, essentially, as Daniel Kinahan returned first to Spain and back into the heart of his boxing organisation, his his role that he saw legitimised him, what was happening was a plan was being devised, a policing plan here in Ireland that was first reactionary to the Regency, the events there. It was the... the um, you know, to target, first of all, the dissident Republican groupings that had come to the aid of the, the Hutch organised crime group. And it was to, to quell that risk. And then it was to to try and get a handle on the murders that were happening on the streets. And, and that was kind of like the emergency policing plan. But there was also at the same time a longer term policing plan devised then at that same time, because while the Hutch organisation could could be handled within Ireland, the Kinahan organisation was outside the country. And to tackle it and to try and dismantle it, um, you could... The Gardaí here could handle the, the operatives on the ground. In the UK, there was a focus put on Bomber Kavanagh and his organisation, which was obviously a partner group with the Kinahans. But outside that, it was international cooperation and it was a proper five to seven year plan that was put in place in order to take down this monstrous organisation. And of course, in September 2016, when... Um, the MGM gym was raided in a joint operation between the Guarda Civil and the Irish police. Um, and James Quinn, a childhood friend of Daniel Kinahan, was arrested in connection with the murder of Gary Hutch. At that point, I remember just thinking it was just so typical. Uh, Kinahan had fled. He'd gone. He'd left Spain for good. And he has never come back. And that was 2016. He has not set foot in Europe since. He moved to Dubai. And he settled down there. And around the same time, Niall, and to follow this joint trajectory of the boxing and the organised crime, MGM also moved their property rights to to Dubai, to the Emirates. And the company, we were then told, was sold up completely, that Daniel Kinnan had no longer anything to do with it, that Matthew Macklin and himself had sold this company to the aforementioned Sandra Vaughan a former tanning tycoon from Scotland who had links to um, some associates of Kinahan from previous times. And 
she basically said she bought it outright and moved its headquarters to Dubai. So both Kinahan and his former company move in and around the same time out to Dubai. Yeah, so I mean, um, MGM became MTK Global um, and they continued to grow. Um, obviously, as they grew, the name Daniel Kinahan kept coming up, not just in the Irish media, but in fairness, mostly in the Irish media, but it also appeared other places. And um, Sandra Vaughan in particular became the, the, the face of NTK Global and made a number of statements about how much uh, she, she liked and respected Daniel, but that he was no longer involved in the company. And um, obviously then they, they also launched a, a boycott of the Irish media for a period of time um, because of... Uh, you know, uh, it was said that the Irish media were unfair in them and 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 kept bringing up uh, Daniel Kinnahan's involvement. I think it took Sandra Vaughan a while to say that she was a friend of his and that she she liked and respected him because for the first few years she denied that he had absolutely anything to do with MTK. He was literally gone, had sold up, had nothing to do with it. And that's why they launched the boycott on the Irish media because the Irish media wouldn't stop being very pesky and annoying and calling it the, the company that was founded by Daniel Kinahan. They wanted to whitewash him away from the history of that company as they continued their enormous growth in the Emirates and opened up gyms all over the world. All over the world. I mean, South Africa, Australia. Um, yeah, she's, you know, all over the place. Yeah, she she um, she made the, these statements, but then at some point... Um, you know, I, I, you probably know the Times better than me. Um, Daniel's name started appearing in some of the comments made by by MTK boxers, thanking him, um, praising him for his advice. And uh, so, although he was, and it's still the, the the statement that MTK Global make that he has no involvement uh, or that they sold up, and he's he's, but it did start to appear then that he was an advisor to a range of fighters uh, fighting under the MTK Global uh, banner. Um, and a lot of that came to a head then, obviously with Panorama, which which you were mm. involved with yourself in terms of appearing on it. Yeah, I think really um, for those few years between 2016 and maybe 2019, 2020, Kinahan did very much remain in the background as MTK Global boomed. And I mean, literally... We've already said it took over boxing, but it completely, practically took over the boxing arena. Um, and he was very much in the background. There was very little information about him. The policing operation in the background was ongoing. There was a lot of um, things happened with partners of his, with the the Dutch with the Americans coming on board, the Australians, a lot of law enforcement agencies around the world started to get together. A key moment was maybe when um, the first of the phone, the encrypted phone networks, the, the server was discovered in Canada and the information through legal um, applications by various countries ended up back in Holland to be used in, in trials. And that information was damning to a number of uh, suspected criminals. The start of the process of extraditing big criminals back from Dubai began. Um, and all the while, I think Daniel Kinahan very much as the time went on, 
started feeling more and more and more untouchable. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt of it. By June 2020, when Tyson Fury famously put out uh, a selfie video calling him out as the broker of the, the, the fight that was due to happen, never did actually, but between him and Anthony Joshua, that was going to be the biggest fight in the world um, in, in, in decades. And he name-checked him on that video. And, you know, what you had was the release of this online book. You had the release of this online documentary about Daniel Kinahan and how he'd been treated. And this narrative had developed and was being pushed on various social media sites and through these other uses of, of, of video and um, and through the book. The narrative was that Daniel Kinahan was a good guy that had, you know, come from Dublin, from nothing, had built his way up in the boxing world, had become an incredibly successful and um, powerful um, boxing personality, um, was a legitimate businessman who, for some reason, back in his hometown in Ireland, in Dublin, had been set up by the press, the government, the police, all working hand in hand with his enemies in the, the Hutch organisation. I mean, that was the narrative that was put out. Enda Kenny, the then Taoiseach, was called out as part of the this big, huge conspiracy theory that culminated that day in the Regency when, you know, police turned a blind eye, when media showed up knowing this event was going to happen, knowing this attack on him was going to happen and that he escaped free and, and, you know, has since been pilloried by the Irish people, by the by the government. And it's all to do with, in this conspiracy theory, it was all to do with um, the rise of Sinn Féin in the general elections. I mean, it is absolutely crazy. Well, it's a feature of modern life, though, these conspiracies. I mean, mm. um, you know, uh, like obviously the, the QAnon phenomenon in the US uh, I mean a lot of that came you know when you trace it all back it came down to you know a pedophile ring in a, in a, in a pizzeria in, in Boston was it um, and it sounds so ludicrous but it managed to attract I don't know millions of people who, who bought into it um, so this is a cons- this is a conspiracy theory that, um, that obviously that, that um, Enda Kenny was allowing murders to happen on his thing in order for Sinn Féin to get affected in the polls, which of course didn't work because Sinn Féin got a, uh, you know, were yeah. affected by, by the whole thing. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> in fact, it, it, it was, uh, you know, it did become an issue in the general election and it was used as something to, 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 that, that was affected Fine Gael and the government as in you can't even control criminality on the streets. And everybody would have known that, that a government yeah. gets blamed when things go out of control in, in crime. It's something that, that politicians are very responsive to. But that's not to try and disabuse the conspiracy theory because they become totally pointless. But I think the rise of the, you know, the rise of social media and all these things, um, you know, if you have a, a group of people willing to put this out, Mm-hmm. Um, you'll also attract some people who believe it. Um, and uh, Some people, but I mean, if you think about it, I mean, what is the point of it all? The point of it is to convince the ruling classes in the United Arab Emirates that this is a possibility. And I suppose, you know, a lot of people are so far away from Ireland. There is people outside Ireland believe that sometimes that there's still a war on, that they're, you know what I mean, that the IRA are still very much in control of the country and and... 
Um, so it, it was a clever, it is a clever misinformation campaign. And it's, it's, it's not pointless. It's not just to convince those boxers that Daniel Kinnan is a good guy. It's to convince the people who will probably ultimately make the decision on his fate. Yes, and it, it, it does muddy the waters, of course. Uh, I mean, if you look at, uh, not to compare, uh, uh, you know, what's going on to, to the Ukraine, but there is a reason why why Putin and people like that spend hundreds of millions, billions, pumping out pumping out disinformation into the system. Because it does, mm. even if people don't believe that the Ukrainians are bombing themselves, it, it creates enough of a, a grey area that that you know that that it allows them a bit of maneuverability, and I think that obviously that is the purpose of this. Um, it's not to it's not to convince maybe the people in Dublin who know the players or anything like that, but it's just to create a kind of a a, a, a grey cloud over the allegations against against mm. Daniel Kennan, and of course then as well he has managed to embed himself in the society in the Gulf in a way that the other um, ex- exiled criminal figures never did. I mean, obviously, if you look at the Raphael Imperiale, who's now, you know, he was obviously living in great luxury with great money over there. But, you know, th- the fact is he hasn't uh, managed to put down roots within the society in the way that Daniel Kinnan has, you know, who's, who's mm-hmm. directly employing people over there, people who were born there, you know, he, he's he's operating as a legitimate force there. And, you know, I think that that has been the, 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 the twin strategy all along. It's not just to live in the Gulf and live off the proceeds of crime, but also to embed himself in society by employing, I mean, they, they've employed a large number of boxers from, from that part of the world, from the Gulf area, have been, you know, taken up by, by him. You know, he's meeting with officials all the time in, in the boxing capacity. And also then... You know, we'll point to, well, look at all this, you know, this grey area around mm. the allegations against me. Look it up on the Internet. You'll see it. And, you know, he has a he's, he's trying to create a circumstance in where he's separating himself from the other exiled criminals that he's he's different. You know, he's he's part of that culture over there. Um, so I think that's the ultimate aim. And like he is different in one way because whereas Taji was operating on a false passport, a false name, and Imperiale was also had some sort of a Russian passport. Imperiale has actually been jailed in Italy. Um, the first extradition request was rejected, which was a bit of a shock to the system, to everybody, I think, um, just there before Christmas. And, um, you know, when the, when the Italians looked for him back and the UAE said, uh-uh, that was like gave certainly gave I think Kinahan more confidence and a, and an absolute boost in his belief of being untouchable. But in actual fact, it appears from our information, and we were writing about it in the Sunday World this week, that it was really more a paperwork problem that they didn't fill in all the clauses that they had to. The Supreme Court in Italy has confirmed that he has been jailed for five years there on uh, organised crime offences. Um, He's wanted, actually, I thought was very interesting what he's wanted for in Italy and what we believe that the the UAE are handing him back for is the fact that he ran his criminal empire from the Gulf and that he was organising shipments and other uh, elements of organised crime from that base out there. Now, that would be what the uh, the Garda's Drug and Organised Crime Bureau would say of Kinahan, that he has very much run his organisation and directed it from Dubai over the past 
six coming into seven years now that he has had enjoyed the freedom over there. But he is different because he is Daniel Kinahan. He's not going by a false passport. He's not going by anybody else. And he doesn't have a conviction um, to his name. The one time I believe he was brought to court here in Ireland, he was acquitted in relation to a, a you know, a, a fracas with some guardy. That was when he was in his 20s. He is different and, um, you know, and you'll have seen as well as I have over over the years, he's been pictured with this official from the from the Gulf states, did that official, you know, he's obviously meeting these guys all the time. Um, and, you know, I don't think the same could be said for the other the other guys that are being deported. Um, he, you know, he's probably involved in the employment of loads of people in legitimate businesses mm-hmm. over there. And, you know, um, we'll see if that, that, that works, I suppose. I mean, that's what it comes mm. down to. Um, but he, he certainly is, uh, you know, although the, the, the propaganda complaint or campaign, it can seem kind of crude and, 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 you know, you can look at it and think it's a bit, you know, it's a bit, it's, it, it, it seems a bit silly, some of it. But, you know, you're not, you're looking at it from our perspective. There's a different perspective over mm. there um, where, you know, if 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 you can muddy the waters enough there, you know, who knows how the operation of law operates over there, really, you know. But certainly they mm. don't have, um, in the Gulf states, they don't have a great uh, tradition of, of, they have a tradition now of extraditing expat criminals, but they certainly don't extradite their own in the same in the same way. No. But it was interesting to see that 145 were extradited last year, foreign criminals who, who were given to various territories all over the world by them. So, you know, we sit back, we see that they haven't given us Daniel Kinahan yet, but in fairness, they're doing a good bit of work there um, on, on you know, I'm sure there's a ber- very long list of people. And I think as well, I think there is a recognition over there that this isn't sustainable, that, they, you know, they might get a boost from having sort of, uh, criminals based over there but really they they also have their own long-term plan in 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 dubai and, and in the emirates where they don't want to become a dumping ground for for that sort of stuff and they seem mm. to be moving against that that they have they have a long-term plan for their business and it's not to become a a, a place for shady money they do seem to want to stop that and they do seem to have taken a lot of stands in the last while and i think also on a, on a corporate level as well they seem to be trying to stamp out that movement of dirty money over to the Gulf. Mm-hmm. Now, we said at the beginning that sometimes when uh, Daniel Kinahan comes under pressure that he reacts in a way of sort of kicking back and, and I suppose kicking off one of these propaganda, if you will, campaigns and press relations campaigns, which is exactly what he's in the middle of at the moment, um, probably the most significant one to date. But it would be our understanding that the pressure has grown immensely on him and that he has suffered massive financial losses in the criminal side of his business. Um, and again, while MTK insists he's nothing to do with them, we do know that he is advising and, you know, brokering. He's certainly, whether it's his independent boxing he's running or whatever, but between... Um, Probellum, which of course is a new boxing company that has also opened up only last year and, uh, you know, basically expanded at breakneck speed even faster than MTK ever did. And it is also hosting and running um, shows out in the in the in the Gulf. Um, it has signed a number of the MTK boxers, Sonny Edwards, one of Daniel Kinahan's greatest um 
choir boys and they've also signed Tasha Jonas, who would have been MTK's sort of one of her mo- their most famous female boxers. So both those companies are are doing massive business out in the Gulf and they're turning around an awful lot of money through boxing. Um, and what we do know is that Daniel Kinnan has suffered these massive losses, that he has built such an enormous organised crime structure that it costs a hell of a lot of money to run it. Um, I mean, a guesstimate is a million a month. I think that is way below what it, sh- what it probably is. I mean, you could nearly say it's, you know, you're looking at possibly, I know the figures get silly, but, you know, a million a week or a fortnight to run it. And you need to pay those bills and you need to keep everybody happy. And um, in order to do so, I believe he's sort of having to squeeze other parts of his business and has been coming under a lot of pressure, so much so that he wants out of the cocaine game. It's too risky. And he has his sights on um, moving in towards organic cannabis, which he feels is semi going to become legal at some stage, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the control of, 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 you know, you can see that now over time that the fact that all of these people that he that he trusted and have either ended up in prison or have ended up uh, basically not able to operate in Ireland at all or over in Dubai or Spain or wherever, um, I think... Um, that that the, the business, the drugs business has become almost unsustainable for him. Um, but the reality is, and uh, you, you've seen it before with, with criminal figures who try and go, you know, who try and move away from that business. Like they have, they, there's a lot of people in prison who owe him, who, who are doing time for him. And that those people have to be looked after and minded because ultimately, um, you know, people can't be, you know, people, otherwise people are inclined to to talk, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a huge worry. There's so many of them um, that have 60 here in Ireland. And I mean, the end of this month now, we have the sentencing of Bomber Kavanagh, who was the biggest really head on the block that, that came of the Regency and all the investigations around that. Um, he's due to be sentenced over there. And we don't know yet if he's wanted here in Ireland for in relation to any of the crimes that have been investigated. Um, But he has a huge, um, you know, an absolutely enormous uh, wage bills coming out of the the organised crime organisation. And keeping that whole show on the road, the stress of it, the paranoia about being arrested, watching Raphael Imperiale for... The, that brief period thinking, OK, he's got away with it, and then, oh, no, he hasn't. Uh, it's just a bit of dodgy paperwork there from the Italians. Let's get that fixed up. OK, he's been sent home and he's becoming a lonelier figure out there in his desert bolt hole. He, he's the last man standing of that um, of that European super cartel. And, um, you know, anybody can see his days are numbered. So this interview is his last blast it's his last go at trying to convince the 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 emirati authorities that he is legitimate and he has been picked upon see the problem of course with those interviews and even if you have a a, a friendly interview interviewer which which may be the case in, in, in this situation um that um you know like unless unless you're real you know, it can be, it, it doesn't convince anybody. In fact, it makes it worse. 
I mean, I'm not again. I'm not comparing him to Prince Andrew now or somebody like that. But that's a good classic example of an interview. And I know he's not going to get the grilling that Prince Andrew got. But where you know somebody believes they're convincing and they believe, and I'm sure who knows what went on there, but they believe that they can by by sitting down and speaking, and they're probably a convincing person. I'm sure Daniel Kennan is a very, you know, has a, a presence and a personality. But they believe that if by sitting down, they're going to convince people, but it can often go wrong. And, you know, it's been seen many, many times. How I know I'd be surprised if this is, is if, um, if, if, um, in, in fairness to, to James English, if he's Emily and Emily Mattis type grilling, I would, I would doubt. But, um, yeah, so we'll see. But it's, it's a risk. And you wonder what the value of the risk, Daniel. Kinnan is taking and why you would take that and the only real answer is you know it feels like a bit of a desperate situation and that's of course why Prince Andrew and again I'm not saying uh, I'm not comparing them as as individuals but you know that's obviously why Prince Andrew decided I'm going to go out there and show the world and uh, you know didn't really work out that way. It's also Niall Probably why you're the deputy editor of the Sunday World and not the chief marketing officer for <laughs> Daniel Kinnan or his likes, you yeah. know, because you're not giving information that sort of people who are maybe have narcissistic tendencies would like to yes. hear. Yeah, because again, it's like, again, I'm not comparing to the Donald Trump, but Donald Trump famously. You are. Well, I'm comparing it in terms of the, you know, that belief. I like these comparisons. Uh, I think they're just, you know, I think they're good. Well, they're good. Okay. Well, I'd say what I believe is those people who believe that if I sit down opposite this person now, I'm, they're going to come away and thinking Daniel Kinnan is, should be given a, a knighthood or whatever. Um, and Daniel, mm. Donald Trump famously did it with the, um, uh, the, the Bob Woodward he was told, "Don't do it. Don't just don't sit down and talk to him. He's gonna. He's not gonna write anything positive about you." All of all of his advisors said it to him, but Donald Trump really believed. I'm going to convince him, and he did it. And of course, Bob Woodward didn't write a good yeah. word about him to save his life. Um, it's that self belief. It's that belief that you could charm. Yeah, and I mean, he's gonna go. He's gonna go on, and I, I don't know what he's gonna say, but maybe he'll go on and say, "I've never been involved in anything." And it's stuck. I'll tell you what he's going to say, right? I'm going to predict it here okay. and now. What he's going to say is that he is a legitimate businessman, that he only has the boxer's interests at heart, that the only people who are critical of him are a handful of mouthpiece journalists in Ireland who don't mean anything anyway and who have nothing else to do but to write bad things about him to try and feed their families. Yeah. That is what he's going to say. And he's going to say that he is a victim. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure that I, I believe that's what he's going to say. But if I was to give him PR advice, I'd say, go on and say, look, I've been involved in all sorts of dodgy stuff all my life, but I'm not going I'm, I'm, I'm moving away from that now and I'm just going to be involved in boxing. And I can't talk about that because I don't want to be prosecuted. I'm going to silence you now because it's free advice <laughs> to somebody. And I, I think that's really highbrow. And there would be companies all over this country that would charge a lot of there money was, for that there advice. Was, so there just, would. Mm, well. Ian, mute him there now for a while and we'll just come to the end of this because he's lo losing the run of himself well, giving free advice be, to be, well it's not yeah it is free by the way I'm not under and you know, I'm not, being, <laughs> not getting any under the, the counter payment I'd like to put on record no I can I can tell mm. I can tell you still need a new pair of shoes <laughs> so look right well listen for the moment we'll leave it at that and um, 
whatever else we've said, we certainly will be watching and uh, we shall regroup. Yes. After he has spoken. Thanks very much, Nicola. Thanks, Niall. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.